I appreciate y'all being here today as we seek to come to be encouraged by the Word of God, singing of our songs. You know, singing is kind of interesting. Songs are interesting in and of themselves. There was a pop song several years ago, performed, I think, first in 1975. Uh, I Write the Songs by Bruce Johnston. It was probably more popular remembered by being uh, done by Barry Manilow years ago. I was surprised that, to learn that Captain and Tennille, also pop artists of the early 70s, did it as well. I don't ever recall hearing them sing it, but I do recall hearing Barry Manilow sing it. The lyrics of the song are, I've been alive forever, and I wrote the very first song. I put the words and the melodies together. I am music, and I write the songs. I write the songs that make the whole world sing. I write the songs of love and special things. I write the songs that make the young girls cry. I write the songs. I write the songs. My home lies deep within you, and I've got my own place in your soul. Now when you look out through your eyes, I am young again, even though... I'm very old. And that's most of the song. The chorus is repeated. There's a bridge in it. One of the things he says in that bridge is, Oh, my music makes you dance and gives you your spirit to take a chance. Gives you spirit to take a chance. I wrote some rock and roll so you can move. Music fills your heart. And that's a real fine place to start. It's for me, it's for you, it's for you, it's for me, it's a worldwide symphony. I write the songs that make the whole world sing of love and special things. I write the songs. It was in 2009, archaeologists excavating a cave in southern Germany uncovered a flute carved from a vulture's wing bone. The delicate artifact is considered to be the oldest musical instrument known on earth. They dated it around 40,000 years ago. I don't know that we can know exactly when humans developed music, began listening to music, but our scientists today tell us that music does a lot. It benefits us individually, it benefits us collectively. It tells us the power of music to improve our physical and mental and emotional health. When you think about it, as they say, music does connect us. Music will lead to better learning. Helps memory. It can even help treat mental illness. Think of when Saul was possessed by an evil spirit. Now, that was sent from God. But maybe before it, maybe before it got very bad... One of the things that it was doing was tormenting him, and David would go and play the lyre. And the music of the lyre that David was playing was helpful to him. It would calm him. It helped him. Music helps treat depression, helps lower anxiety. It has a lot of benefits for us today, whether it be the, the instrumental type which sometimes I prefer much to the vocalizations, because today I can't hardly understand the words. It's been that way for a while. 
And some of the words I just prefer not to listen to as well. But music helps us. And when we come together, we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Because we want to lift our voices in praise to God. But we also want to encourage one another as well. And Paul would write in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16, coming from the New American Standard today. He says, chapter 3, whoop, that's Philippians, that won't work. Chapter 3 of Colossians, verse 16, saying, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. With all wisdom and teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Our songs have a purpose. To praise God, but to also convey to Him and to one another the encouragement that comes from the song. Sometimes when you get to know a songwriter, words become much more impactful. Some songwriters went through a lot. Thomas Dorsey wrote the song, Take My Hand, Precious Lord. He did it after the death of his wife and son in childbirth. That would be difficult. But he found an outlet because of his faith that was able to help him cope with that tragedy. Horatio Spafford, who wrote... It is well with my soul, and you probably heard the story. But in part, and briefly in part, because of all the trauma that he suffered in life. He had a four-year-old son that died. He lost everything in the great Chicago fire. I believe in 1870-something or other. I forget when it was. Uh, he had four daughters killed in an accident when a ship collided that they were on collided with another ship and the ship they were on sank his wife cabled him famous telegram she was saved she just wrote saved alone she was the only one of the family and when they're taking a voyage across that and they get to the point where the ship went down and his daughters and others perish it's said that that's when he wrote the song it is well with my soul music it does a lot. The songs we sing have purpose. They draw praise to God and they teach us. The song I asked Bill to lead is a song that we're all familiar with. We may have it memorized. At least when we hear the lyrics and some and the song and somebody starts singing it. There are actually four verses to the song. I don't know why we I guess it's because of print space and the books might have to be this big instead of as big as they are if we put all the verses in them or the pages would have to be so thin and we just choose to edit them it is well with my soul precious lord hold my hand hold to god's unchanging hand songs that have meaning that have impact and today i'd like to deal with Hold to God's unchanging hand. I'd like to take the first verse apart and examine it just a little bit in light of Scripture and see what we can learn from it. And that very first 
phrase in the song is, time is filled with swift transition. Time. What is time? Have you ever tried to answer what it is? John Clayton was a devout atheist until his early 20s. He tried, he was going to write a book about all this, called All the Stupidity of the Bible, but in doing so, he slowly found himself becoming converted to Christ. He is a retired teacher, a geologist by profession. He has degrees in education with concentrations in mathematics and physics. Now, I know that teaching has its challenges. I was a student at one time. If John Brock, one of my chemistry professors in high school, physics professor, he could tell you. You know, fun things to do in class when you're in chemistry is you take those high-pressured pointed jet-tip faucets and you put a rubber sleeve on them to slow it so not so pointed. But if you make a jet-tip out of a glass tube, you can shoot from one end of the room to the other. I know. I did it. It was fun. We had a free lab one day in physics, or maybe it was chemistry, I forget. You said, you guys, do whatever you want. Well, I had fun. I had gone to World Book Encyclopedia. I looked up nitroglycerin. And the basic elements that are needed are nitric acid, sulfuric acid, glycerin, and I don't know, probably other things. And he said, what are you guys doing? I said, we're making nitroglycerin. Uh, yeah, he just kind of shook his head. Yeah, all right. And then he looked a little closer to what we had on our lab table. And he said, guys, we better stop right here. I think maybe we were on the close of coming up with an experiment that maybe might put something together that may have been explosive in nature. You know, you're high school. You're not thinking about anything because you're indestructible. John Clayton had to deal with classes like that. Whether it was the first day of class or the second, I don't know. He told the story, and it may have happened more than one time. Maybe he did it on every occasion. He would just tell his students that, tell you what, if you can get a, answer this question successfully, we'll have a one-question test right at the beginning of class, and there'll be no more tests. You get an A. Now, who wouldn't be game for that? Raise my hand. I am in it. You know, I'll come up with some kind of an answer. So he's writing on the board. They were all encouraged. They wanted to do it. Yeah, we'll do it. We'll take you on. He wrote, what is time? You know, time is familiar to everyone. But it is hard to define, impossible to define. It's hard to understand. Science, philosophy, religion, the arts have different definitions of time, but all struggle to define and understand the phenomenon of time. We live in a closed system. We have a past, a present, and a future. We can go forward, but we can't go past. But that doesn't tell us what time is. Time is considered to be the fourth dimension of reality. It's used to describe events in three-dimensional space. It is not anything that we can see, touch, taste, or smell. But in our world, we can define its measure as passage. Many years ago, 
2,500 years ago, Aristotle said that time is the most unknown of all unknown things. Fifth century philosopher St. Augustine of Hippo is said to famously have written that he knew what time it was unless someone asked him. He knew what time was unless someone asked him, excuse me. Time is an enigma. We can't explain it, but we live it every day. And the writer of the song, Jenny Wilson, says it's filled with swift transition. Now, you don't have to be very old to know that. Time moves the older you get with lightning speed. Or so it seems. And sometimes it just seems to just linger and never move at all. But the transitions in life, they come quick. When we first got married and had children, it's like, you know, you can't wait for them to be born. Then they're born. Then you can't wait for them to start talking. And then they never shut up. You can't wait for them to start walking. And then pretty soon you can't catch them. And time just goes faster and faster. And then there's things that do happen. You set your plans to go and do something, and boom, something else happens. I can't imagine what Spatio thought of, or Spafford thought of, when you know, he lost everything in that great Chicago fire. Gets up one morning, everything's great. Maybe he hears a rumor of a fire somewhere starting, and before you know it, he's lost everything in a fire. Or Thomas Dorsey, his wife's going to have a child, and they're elated, and then he's off doing what he's doing, and he gets word that they both died. And there was nothing they could do. He was living his life one way with all these plans and dreams and hopes for the future, and suddenly they were dashed. But he took solace in God. Time is filled with swift transition, and that's moving from one place to another. And the thing is, we don't know what those transitions are going to be like. James would tell us in James chapter 4, James, that's Peter, James chapter 4, verse 13, he'd want us to know about time. He would say, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Sounds great. Let's do it. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. You can make all those plans, but you don't know what's going to happen. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. Living apart from God without understanding some of these things, you're not cognizant of what's going on in the world and the shortness of life. Jesus told a story, told a parable of a man who had great wealth. He told... He's telling the story to illustrate not to trust in the things of the world. He says, this man came to his thinking, says, I am wealthy. I've got this huge harvest. 
I'll just have to tear down my barns and build bigger barns. I'll put it in there, then I'll say, you've got good stored up for a long time. Relax, take your ease. Then an angel comes to him and says, this night your very soul is required of you. It's here today and tomorrow it's somebody else's. That's the way it goes. Swift transitions. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We have to live every day thinking that today is the day that Christ is going to come. Perhaps today. So that we'll have this awareness. Now, if we do want to go to that city and engage in business, spend a year or more there, if the Lord wills, we'll do this. Having that conscious awareness that no matter what my plans are like, I'm not in control. And I don't know the length of my days. Time, we don't know what it is, but we do know it's filled with swift transition. And the next stanza, or the next, not stanza, but the next part of the first verse is, Not of earth unmoved can stand. Nothing. That's the way they talked back in early 1900s or earlier when this was written. You know, they used the good King James English. Nothing of earth can stand. That's important for us to realize. Because we have all these plans and we build all of these things to our glory. Yeah, sometimes we'll build them to the glory of God. But they're things. And we put our trust and our hope and our confidence in them. You know, I was talking the other day to a fellow in San Diego. He had moved from San Diego several, to San Diego several years from Missouri. And we could relate in part. Except I don't know if he was a Jayhawk fan or not. But I won't hold that against him. But anyway, it's the definition of the seasons. Now, we've been in Yuma since 1994. We have seasons. There is cool, warm, hot, and hotter. You know, but you don't get snow. You don't get these wonderful big thunderclouds that we got back in the plains. And he said, that was the only thing we really had to worry about in Missouri was tornadoes. Don't have to worry about them in San Diego. But there are earthquakes, but we're not really that close to there, but, you know, further north. I said, yeah. Yeah, I was surprised to learn that the San Andreas Fault just comes maybe about 40 miles west of Yuma. Comes down that far. Maybe one of these days we will have beachfront property. No political comments needed on that one about California. But anyway, I digress. You know, over in California, they have to build things that will withstand earthquakes. And I'm certain that they are very, very confident that they can withstand all sorts of earthquakes. Right. Job chapter 9. Job is reflecting on things. He says, how can a man be right with God? If anyone wished to dispute with him, he could not answer him once in a thousand times. Wise in his heart and mighty in strength, who has defied him without harm? 
Who defies God and doesn't pay for it? It is God who removes the mountains. They know not how. He overturns them in his anger. Who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble. Now it was several years ago and you probably remember the story. We were doing a sudden evening class on Job. And I was in my study and I was on that passage. Verse 6. And we had an earthquake. Did a lot of damage around Mexicali. Even in El Centro. It shook in Yuma at my house for a minute. You could see the light fixtures shaking. A full one minute. That was a strong one. And God's saying, you can see nothing yet. Man can have all of these plans and build all of these things and say, I'm going to do this. I've, we've got, you know, so much power. God laughs. He doesn't care. All he has to do is send the wind, the cold. Look what he did to Texas last winter. Now, I'm not saying God actively did that. But what happened to Texas when they had that cold front? Pipes broke. They were caught without power. I can almost see God saying, you think you have power? You think you're something? Let me just send you a little bit of cold temperature. You in Texas? Now deal with it. And God's just sitting there, okay. Yeah. You build that strong earthquake-proof tower, building, whatever it is, I'll send you an earthquake. You want to see a mountain move? I can move them. You want me to pick up Mount Everest and cast it into the the Mariana Trench in the Pacific? I can do that if I want to. Man can't do anything. Nothing of earth can stand. The things that we build, they're nothing. They will fail before God. So she said, build your hopes on things eternal. In the book of Romans, in chapter 5, Paul here will tell us, after he's exposed and built on his foundation, his premise that we're all lost, we're saved by the grace of God, there's no boasting, we are justified by faith. In, verse, in chapter one, or chapter 5 and verse 1, he says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exalt in the hope of glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings perseverance, perseverance, proven character, proven character, hope, And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. You see, you might go and spend two bucks on a Powerball ticket. I don't know what it is. I don't care what it is. But if it's $500 million, I mean, why not? Two bucks? Somebody's got to win it. I'm not saying you should do that, by the way. But it's two bucks. Somebody's going to win it, maybe. Because we know they do. But when you put by that two bucks and you put it down, do you have a 
confident hope, this is mine. Nah. Biblical hope, you see, does not disappoint. It is an earnest, it's, it's hope with an earnest expectation of receiving. We hope. We have hope in our salvation in Christ. Why? Because the tomb is empty. So we hold, we build our hopes on things that are eternal. We build them on God. You know, there's a second verse in that song, and I'm not going to get into it. I may develop it more next week. But just to give you a preview, it says something about trusting in Him who will not leave you. Maybe it's the third verse that's not in our songbook. Trust not in this vain world's riches. I'd have to look it up on the internet again. Jesus says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Why? There is no hope in those things. You're building on things that are shifting sand. But rather lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy where thieves can't break in and steal. When your treasures are laid up in heaven, they're secure. And you don't have to worry about them. Build your hope on things that are eternal. God is eternal. He's outside of our fixed, closed universe. He interacts with us. He's interacted with us. He created this system. He is alive. So we build our hopes, that earnest expectation of receiving, on that which is eternal, and that is God. So she goes on to say, hold to God's unchanging hand. Hold. In Luke's Gospel, oh, excuse me, in John's Gospel, in chapter 10, Jesus is talking about the sheep and the goats. Oh, excuse me, the sheep that are following him. He says, my sheep hear my voice. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them. I have knowledge of them. I know who they are. I know what's going on in their lives. And they follow me. And because they follow me, I give to them eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them, snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So you're in, when you're holding on to Christ, to His hand, His hands are held by God. So you hold on. Now, several years ago, Kathy and I went whitewater rafting up into Mexico. I was holding on to the raft pretty well. One guy wasn't. I don't know what we hit. Some water, twist, I don't know. He popped out. We had to... I mean, we had life jackets on. I was holding on to the raft. I don't trust life jackets. I sink really well. I don't swim so well. I'm not ashamed to admit it. He popped out. Now we caught him. We got him back in the boat. If I'd have popped out, I'd have been grasping. I'd have grabbed whoever grabbed me first. I'm holding on because I'm not letting go. So that's what we have to do. We have to be tenacious in our holding and hold on to God's hand. We're holding on to God and Christ and they're holding us back. Nothing can take us out of the Father's hand. 
And God's hand is unchanging. The Hebrew writer said in chapter 13 and verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's unchanging. We don't have to worry. The world is changing and morals, it's, you know, values all the time. Every, you know, you get up in the morning and something else has changed. Not God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So you have to hold to God's unchanging hand. And that's what we get when we read that song, when we sing it. That's what she's communicating to us. I don't know exactly why. I do know that at the age of four, that the author, Jenny Wilson, got typhoid, settled in her spine and caused her to be paralyzed. One day you're a four-year-old running through the yard, playing with your friends. Next day you're sick. Sometime later you can't walk. Time is filled with swift transition. Nothing on earth can stand. So you build your hopes on things eternal. And you hold to God's unchanging hand. And that's what we have to do. I don't know where you are. If you've let go of the Father's hand, you need to grab a hold for dear life. If you're not holding really secure, you need to strengthen your grip. Knowing that he's not going to let go of you, but you might let go of him. And there are things in this life, those transitions that we go through swiftly that catch us off guard that maybe weaken that grip for a little while. But don't let go. Hold to God's unchanging hand while together we stand and sing this song for your encouragement.